Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to Family Stories. There's only one more day to go until you can hug friends and family to your heart's content. In the meantime, we have a big virtual hug for you in the form of our Family Stories, the pod which lets you, our listeners, tell stories from your own families.
First up, we have this account from Richard Vies about his great-uncle. Albert Franz Rodhain, or Franz as he was known, was born in Mechelen, Belgium in 1902. He was the son of Edward and Josephina, who ran the local chemist in their town. Franz had three younger sisters, including Madeleine, who was my grandmother. The family lost their father to Spanish flu in August 1918, when Franz was only 16, and exactly three years later to the day their mother died, leaving all three orphaned. At the age of 23, Franz declared his ambition to become a priest, and at Christmas 1925 he celebrated his first Mass. Later, he moved to Leuven, where he took on the role as priest to the parish. He was well-liked and more approachable than many of the priests at that time, who were often regarded as officious and remote. He ran the local scout group, taught in the school, and helped many in the parish. Then, the war came to Belgium. He was not initially involved in the war effort, but there was a turning point for France when the authorities started to order all the young people to leave Belgium and go to work in Germany. France knew this was unacceptable and started to hide many of the young people of the parish before they could be deported. It must have been about this time that he joined the Belgian resistance. His actions escalated from hiding people to recording troop movements, passing on information and then helping English and Belgian airmen and agents escape the authorities. One episode during his time as a resistance fighter is a bit more allo allo than secret army. France had been asked to hide a British airman for a day or so whilst the resistance organised how he could be smuggled out of the country. Unsure what to do with him, they both dressed as civilians and went to the local cinema to watch the latest show. Once France and his guests had sat down in the cinema, there was a great kerfuffle, the lights went up and in walked the senior officer of the local German garrison. Recognising France as the local priest, he sat down next to him, chatted a bit and then the show started. On one side of France was the senior officer of the local garrison, and on the other was the airman. Not much is recorded of France's response to the situation, but I like to think he kept his cool throughout. At the end of the film, the lights went up, the German officer nodded to France and his companion, and left without a second thought, never realising that he was one seat away from a British airman. At the time, the head of the local resistance was a man called Fies, the Gestapo had discovered he was the head of the resistance, and in the spring of 1943, they arrested him. Fies was tortured and gave up a number of key people in the local resistance, including France. The Gestapo set a trap. Fies' arrest had been kept quiet, so when a telegram came for France from Fies to meet him, he had no reason to doubt its veracity. Fies was not at the meeting, but the Gestapo were, and France was arrested. Before he had left for the meeting... France had told the rest of the family that he was going to Antwerp to talk to some other family members about an inheritance, so when he did not return immediately they were not concerned. Some weeks later, on the 12th of June 1943, the family received a letter from France at the Saint-Gilles prison in Brussels asking for clothes and toiletries. As they knew that the original telegram had been signed by Fies, the family realised the resistance group had been compromised and they informed the other members, who fled, and the group was disbanded. France was kept in isolation for over a month at Saint-Gilles. During this time, he had only one visitor, his sister Mia, who found him in a miserable state, with no socks, missing his priest's collar, and showing clear signs of torture. His health had deteriorated, and although the local doctor tried to provide medicine, the prison commandant refused. One of his parishioners, Mrs. de Cordier, went to the prison every day to see France, but was always refused entry. 
She said, Many times I have been sitting on a bench in the neighbourhood of the prison. It is not possible to describe the cries of pain which I have heard there. But when I tell you that the Germans were pulling out nails, hair and teeth, they did everything which was inhuman and physically possible in order to get to know something more. Then you realise what terrible scenes must have taken place. We understand that France never gave the Germans any information. At the end of August 1943, France was transferred to the transit camp at Esterwagen, designed to hold between 1,200 and 1,500 prisoners. Most of the inmates were Belgians, judges, doctors, miners, farmers, students and priests. Most had been taken pre-arrest and therefore had no actual charge against them. Apparently the motto of the local Gestapo was It is better one too many than one too few. Security before everything. When France arrived on an uncovered truck, the camp had swelled to 1,900 inmates. Camp guards apparently played a game to see how many prisoners they could kick on arrival as they made their way to processing. France was given his camp number, sent to the showers and fed. All belongings were taken and bagged and the new inmates were given camp uniforms. Many had tried to smuggle in personal items to ease their stay, but they had to give them up as they were forced through the shower block. Complaints about clothing not fitting or the discomfort of the delousing process or the loss of personal effects led to more beatings and the prisoners quickly learnt to keep quiet. The day after they arrived, everyone's head was shaved. After three weeks, each prisoner was brought to see the garrison sergeant, who brought out a bag with their belongings. The sergeant picked up each item in turn and decided whether the prisoner could keep it or not. Most items were declared contraband and stolen or destroyed. Only handkerchiefs, toothbrushes, soap, braces, belts and other small items were allowed. Life in the camp was hard. Poor food, lice, fleas and mosquitoes in the summer, cold in the winter and poor sanitation meant many prisoners became sick, tired and all lost considerable weight. Another priest, Father Froideur, wrote extensively of the deprivations in the camp and the cruelty of the camp guards. During his time at Esdewagen, there was one attempt to escape from the camp in November 1943 and all but one of the prisoners was swiftly recaptured. When the last prisoner was returned to his hut some days later, he was found to be covered in blood and missing all his fingernails. The guards had tortured him to try to make him reveal his co-conspirators. In the spring of 1944, France was transferred to a more comfortable prison in Bayreuth. The prison was near the Wagner Museum, and France, an admirer of Wagner, hoped he would be able to hear some of the music. But if there was any music, it was drowned out by the sound of sewing machines running from dawn to dusk every day. It is unclear when France moved camps again, but it must have been around December 1944. The success of the Allies on both fronts meant the Germans had to decide whether to move or leave the prisoners. Then the order came from Himmler that all prisoners were to be moved inland and towards Germany. Some prisoners were moved by train, but latterly they were forced to march hundreds of kilometres. France's camp was ordered to march the 200 kilometres from Bayreuth to Dachau. Many in his camp never made their destination, dying en route. France, although malnourished and sick, completed his journey, but not without a cost to his health. During the winter of 1944, the camps had no heating at all. Outside it was freezing and inside the sheds were overcrowded. 400 prisoners shared each shed, which measured 10 metres by 10 metres. Food rations were further reduced. Father Froideur and the rest of France's friends recognised that he was suffering and he needed help. They managed to find an apple that would give him the energy he desperately needed to survive. A day later... When hearing his confession, France gave the apple back to Father Froideur, insisting that another priest, a young Jesuit, should have it, as he had the greater need. France died in Block 17, Dachau Camp, on the 20th of January 1945.
Franz Rodin has two plaques in Lübeck and Ytres where he preached. After my grandmother, Franz's sister, died, we discovered a trove of information about him. She was adamant that on her death all items relating to Franz should be buried or destroyed. However, my father and his brothers chose to have them all written up and bound. For his contribution to the war effort, the Belgian government awarded him the Belgian War Medal, the Resistance Medal, the Croix de Guerre avec Palme, and the Croix de Chevalier de l'Ordre de Léopold, Militaire avec Palme, which is equivalent to the French Légion d'Honneur. Belgium has no higher order of bravery. All the medals were donated to the local museum in Belgium. Best wishes, Richard Vase. Our second story this week comes from Jack Ruffhead, who writes, Hi chaps, absolutely love the pod. Bloody well done. I'd like to tell you about Flight Lieutenant Angus Walter Ruffhead. I found his story while desperately trying to find a family connection to the RAF during the war, and although Angus is a distant relative, his story is an interesting one. Angus worked as a bank clerk when war broke out. He joined the RAF and was commissioned as a fighter pilot. He served in both the Middle East and at home, latterly flying Hurricane 4s out of Detling with 184 Squadron. The object of these flights was to attack enemy shipping and destroy V-1 launch sites, which at the time was still very much a secret. Angus's fiancée was a golf champion called Pam Barton. Pam had immediately signed up as an ambulance driver at the outbreak of war and served in London throughout the Battle of Britain. In early 1941, she joined the WAF as a radio operator and later gained a commission, serving as a flight officer in command of a staff of more than 600 at RF Manston in Kent. The following is an extract about Pam and Angus from D-Day Plus One, shot down and on the run in France by Frank Holland. The incident that all of us remember, however, was the tragic accident, the death of Pam Barton, who before the war had been British ladies' open golf champion. She was in the WAF stationed at Manston, but had been flown to Detling in a tiger moth by her fiancé, Flight Lieutenant Angus Roughhead, for a party. Leave had been granted on the condition that she returned to Manston early the next day. Roughhead was planning to fly her back there in the Tiger Moth, but the weather was foul that morning. Finally, when the rain began to ease off, they were ready to go. Because time was getting short, Roughhead decided to take off from the football pitch, just to the side of the aerodrome. But the conditions were soggy, and, it has to be said, Pam, who was in the front seat, was a large girl. Whatever the reasons, ground conditions, weight, whatever, the Tiger Moth was clearly struggling to get airborne. Jack Rose and I and several other members of the squadron watched helplessly as the aircraft, just after its wheels left the ground, crashed into a petrol tanker that was parked on the side of the football pitches. The driver of the tanker and his mate must have seen the aeroplane coming and knew what was about to happen. They just managed to get out of the cab and start running before the Tiger Moth hit. Both the aircraft and the tanker burst into flames. Pam must have been killed instantly in the fire. Roughhead survived. Jack Rose and several members of the squadron raced across the pitch and managed to pull him out of the back of the plane in time. He had only superficial injuries, but he was a changed man after that. The inquiry that sat cleared him of negligence and returned him to duty. But he was never the same man and he dined at a combat mission a few months later in January 44. Jack wondered if Roughhead had been seeking his own death from the time of the accident. He always felt that it had been a mistake not to shift him out of the 184th, which he couldn't help but associate with the tragedy. 
For his final mission, Angus was mentioned in dispatches. The 184 Squadron Diary entry for that day reads, 6th of January, 1944, four Hurricane aircraft led by Flight Lieutenant Roughhead, airborne at 1350 hours to carry out rhubarb attack on Noble Target number 54 with eight 60-pound RPs. Sections made landfall at Latuque and leader orbited 360 degrees to enter coast two miles north of Latuque Peninsula. They were met by intense barrage of accurate light flak. Flight Lieutenant Roughhead was hit directly and was seen to dive straight into the sand dunes in flames. Angus was 29. He's buried in the Boulogne Eastern Cemetery and remembered on the only war memorial. Thanks for all your hard work and getting us all through this war of our own. Best wishes, Jack Roughhead. Our next story has been sent in by listener Robin Brasher. Robin writes, Your interview with Steve Ballinger reminded me of my late father's cousin, Owen Brasher, who was killed while moving an unexploded German bomb. The details are published in a great little book by John Simmons, Heroes of Over, a Cambridgeshire village in two world wars. Owen grew up in the village and in 1939, just short of his 19th birthday, he joined the Territorial Army, becoming a sapper. He went to France with the British Expeditionary Force, but fortunately missed Dunkirk, having returned on leave at Easter, followed by a spell in hospital. When he was fit, he was posted to No. 9 Bomb Disposal Section in the Midlands. The section soon found themselves in the thick of it. In August 1940, seven men were killed in an explosion, followed by two more in Coventry in September, and then a further seven in a single explosion in October. Shortly afterwards, on the 29th of October, they were called out to deal with an unexploded bomb in Woodbridge Road, Moseley, Birmingham. The unit daily report records the following. Bomb explosion during removal. Killed Sapper Owen Brasher and Sapper Leonard Fitchett. Bomb was Category A, delay, 15 and a half hours. A third Sapper, John Brown, also died in the incident. Owen Brasher at just 20 was the youngest of the three and is buried in Over Churchyard. By a sad coincidence, his father, a veteran of the Great War, was in the village post office when the news was telephoned through. Yours, Robin Brasher. Next up, Peter Smith has sent us this story. Dear Alan James, like many of your listeners, I have thoroughly enjoyed the fascinating stories presented each week and would like to take the opportunity to share one from a family friend. Group Captain G.W. Johnny Petrie experienced a varied and challenging career in the Royal Air Force during the Second World War. I have decided to focus on just one of his stories from early 1940, a period of the war that is often overlooked. Flying Officer Petrie, as he was in 1940, had been a member of No. 19 Fighter Squadron based at RAF Duxford the first squadron to be equipped with the supermarine Spitfire. He had already seen combat over the skies of Dunkirk and the south of England, scoring and assisting on a number of enemy aircraft shot down. As part of his section, he assisted in the squadron's first confirmed kill, a Junkers Ju-88 on the 11th of May 1940. For Johnny, flying his Spitfire on the night of the 18th of June proved to be one of the most challenging he had experienced so far. The station commander of RAF Duxford, Wing Commander A.B. Woodhall described the action in a combat report made on Johnny's behalf. Whilst on patrol between Ely and Newmarket, an enemy aircraft was sighted. Flying Officer Petrie shadowed it, 
Between Newmarket and Bury St Edmunds, he was just about to fire when he saw Blenheim in the way. He then sheared off to one side and came in on the quarter of the enemy aircraft, firing a burst in a deflection shot. He saw his tracer going into the enemy, and immediately afterwards one engine poured out volumes of black smoke. At this moment our searchlights caught and held Flying Officer Petrie with the result that the enemy gunner had an illuminated target and opened fire. The Spitfire was hit by what is thought to be an explosive bullet and caught fire. The enemy aircraft caught fire immediately afterwards and came down in flames near Duxford. Flying Officer Petrie jumped by parachute after being badly burned about the face and hands. He is on the dangerously ill list. The enemy aircraft Johnny shot down was later discovered to be a Heinkel. Three of the Heinkel's crew managed to bail out and later the following day they were taken to RAF Duxford. This was believed to be the first nocturnal kill made by a Spitfire. Johnny described the cockpit as almost blowing up in his face after the German air gunner managed to get off a few rounds, one hitting his fuel tank before the Heinkel crashed. He suffered disfiguring burns and would miss the Battle of Britain recovering in hospital. In 1943, having recovered from his injuries, he was tasked with forming and training number 193 Squadron, a rocket-firing Hawker Typhoon unit in preparation for D-Day. He concluded his RAF career at the beginning of the Cold War as the first station commander of RAF Larbrook in West Germany. In later life, he became great friends with my grandfather, himself another RAF Cold War warrior. Johnny sadly passed away on the Isle of Man in 2012, at the age of 95. He is sorely missed. Many thanks for the excellent podcast and the chance to weave the thread of Johnny's war story into the growing family stories tapestry. Keep up the great work. Kind regards, Peter Smith. Our last story this week is from Richard Walker. Richard writes, Dear Alan James, My grandparents met on a camp at Heaton Park, Manchester in 1942. Nan, Norma Hardman, volunteered to join up to get out of a boring factory job. She trained with the RAF at Blackpool and used to shudder when she recalled hours of marching up and down the promenade. To her dying day, she never had more than a 50-50 chance of getting left and right the correct way round, so would invariably find herself marching alone while the other recruits went in the opposite direction. She would be bawled out by the drill instructor, who she always thought took marching a little too seriously. Nan was immensely proud of her war record, despite her contribution being restricted to working in the kitchens at camps and bases in and around Manchester. She wore her medals with great and justifiable pride on Remembrance Day and reminded us youngsters that if you are a girl on a camp with 10,000 young men, you do a lot of fighting for king and country. Grandad, Stanley Keith Law, also volunteered as soon as he hit 18, much to the disgust of his widowed mother, who already had sons in the 8th Army. She didn't understand why her youngest chose to leave a safe, protected job as a trainee market gardener to risk his life. He joined the RAF, and because he was tall and good with his fists, was made a military policeman. Norma and Stanley met when he was on the main gate. Every fortnight, Norma had leave and used to go home to nearby Norden with a big heavy suitcase. The tall, handsome MP took a shine to her and used to carry her suitcase down the road for her to get a tram. He once asked why her suitcase was so heavy and she told him that she was an avid reader and it was full of library books she was taking home to swap. This entertained the family because she was barely literate and never read a book in her life. He did not know at the time that it was actually full of beef, butter, sugar and anything else she could lay her hands on, which she took home for her family and presumably the black market. 
He was a very upstanding young man and would have arrested her on the spot had he known. She told him many years later, when he was in his post-war job in the Rochdale Police, and he threatened to take her in there and then. He went into France in June 1944 on D plus two. His main job appeared to be riding ahead on a Harley Davidson to check the state of large fields the RAF had decided would be turned into temporary airfields. On one occasion, fortunately when light was fading, he accidentally found himself further forward than intended and told us how he drove past a long column of Germans who appeared to be in retreat. He said that he knew he was in a bit of trouble, but decided to style it out by saluting every officer he saw with an extravagant Hitler salute and Heil Hitler. He said that he got a few funny looks, but it was quite dark, and he had a leather motorbike cap on, so presumably they thought that he was one of theirs. He did not talk to me about the next incident, because I was too young to hear it, but he did tell the grown-ups about a much more upsetting ride on his Harley later in the war, when he arrived at a concentration camp in Germany, shortly after it was discovered. He rode around the camp and described how the emaciated prisoners reached out to grab him, presumably wanting food or water. He was too fearful to stop, and thought they might pull him off, so accelerated out of there. In 1946, he spent a long time in hospital convalescing. As a child, I wasn't told anything about this, but I learnt later that he had a breakdown shortly after the concentration camp incident and was treated for months for what we would now call PTSD. He married Norma before he went to France in 1944, and they lived a long and happy life together, with him only telling the stories he wanted to remember. With regards, Richard Walker. That's it for today. If you've got a family story you'd like to be considered for the show, please email it to wehavewayspodcast at gmail.com or leave it on the members site under the Family Stories tab. A reminder, that's patreon.com slash wehaveways. Bye for now and thanks for listening.